1: everyone. This is Ryan Tripp coming to you again for the New Books Network, Native American Studies and History Channel. We're here today uh, discussing Professor Keith Rashat's new book, Claiming Turtle Mountain's Constitution, the History, Legacy, and Future of a Tribal Nation's Founding Documents. Professor Rashat is Turtle Mountain Chippewa, He's Assistant Professor of American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He also proudly serves for nine years, actually, as an Associate Justice of the Turtle Mountain Tribal Court of Appeals. Um, His book, again, is Claiming Turtle Mountain's Constitution, published by uh, the University of North Carolina Press at Chapel Hill. Professor Rashad, welcome.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: We're happy to have you. So first off, I'd like to discuss this uh, the cover illustration here uh, by Michelle Rashad, uh, We the Indians of the Turtle Mountain. Can you discuss uh, how this, uh, this cover illustration was uh, crafted, and who crafted it, and uh, why you selected it as your cover? And describe oh, it a Michelle. little bit as well.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm happy to. Uh, Michelle is actually my sister. And she's a very talented artist. Uh, She has her own website, uh, Prairie Rose Designs, uh, if anybody cares to look it up. But uh, if you have an artist of this talent in your family, you have to try to uh, get the benefit of that whenever you can and and to put her art out there whenever you can. So she was actually staying with uh, me and my wife and our child last year. And I asked her to uh, design a cover for my book, or design some artwork for the cover of my book. And so she read the introduction and other parts of the book, and we talked about it a lot. and and she, mostly than me, obviously, came up with this design, which I think really helps to give a visual representation of what the story is about. And so you have the issue of the the border between Canada and the United States, and then you have Turtle Mountain represented. But you also have a a picture of the turtle that looks like a piece of parchment and a constitution as well. And it's just really, I think, an amazing illustration that sums up visually in many respects what the book is about.
1: Great. So in terms of the book, what shaped uh, your approach to tribal constitutions, including the Turtle Mountain uh, constitutions, and uh, U.S. constitutionalism more broadly?
0: Well, I became very interested uh, when I went to law school just in the Constitution, how we think about the Constitution. At that time, particularly the U.S. Constitution, you don't need to be a constitutional law scholar to know that we spend a heck of a lot of time thinking about what the founding fathers were trying to do and what was in their mind Uh, of these men. And we have to stress men, of course, because we know about the many exclusions there. Uh, But what was in their minds and and what were they trying to accomplish? And so there's a lot of effort to try to to figure that out. And and we understand what the the benefits of those attempts are. And I think we also understand to a great extent, uh, some of the drawbacks as well, too. But it uh, occurred to me one day, I said uh, said to myself, why don't we do that for tribal constitutions? Why don't we take very seriously the people who decided to vote on them and try to figure out what the the quote-unquote founding fathers and founding mothers of a constitution were trying to accomplish when they enacted? one?" And so I started digging into Turtle Mountain's constitution and was really surprised because when I started this project a long, long time ago when it was originally uh, more, in, more in dissertation form, I actually didn't know that there was a 1932 constitution. I had been told the same story that many people in Indian star- studies are told, and, and the, the story that they tell, which is that the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934 came and imposed a bunch of constitutions on tribal peoples. So I was curious about that. And, and once I found out, I, talking to a, a member of the tribe who was a bit of a historian himself, that there was actually a 1932 constitution, I said, wait a minute, there's, there's clearly a different story here. And when I began digging it in, into it more, I began to realize that there actually was a lot of constitutions and constitutionalist thought in Indian country, even before the IRA. And so it got me really thinking about, well, what is the, the story that we're missing here? And what are we not learning by repeating this, this mantra about the Indian Reorganization Act? And I came to find out that there's a, there's a longer history here that gives us a greater insight into contemporary tribal governance. And that perhaps makes us question the U.S. constitutionalism in a bigger, broader sense as well.
1: All right. Let's uh, first uh, situate ourselves um, with a passage from your book. Um, You describe the Turtle Mountains of, and I believe the straddle North Dakota and Manitoba in Canada, as rolling hills and plateau-like areas that nonetheless reach anywhere from 600 to 800 feet higher than the surrounding grasslands. The feelings of familiarity that this woodland oasis surely evoked in the early progenitors of the Turtle Mountain Band could not satisfy a growing taste for the fruits of the plains, particularly once the then plentiful supply of bison became a staple. Can you, can you elaborate on how these early progenitors conceived of a Turtle Mountains um, in relation to the sea of grasslands? Just Just situate us for your study. Okay, certainly.
0: Well, uh, the Turtle Mountain and and the so-called Plains Ojibwe are the westernmost uh, extension of the larger Ojibwe diaspora, I guess we could call it, right? So you're you're talking about peoples that lived around the Great Lakes and then further out uh, to the west. And so by, by at least, and perhaps even much earlier than this, but by at least the early 1800s, there are Ojibwe peoples living on the plains. And the Turtle Mountains were uh, and are somewhat reminiscent of the woodlands area that Ojibwe peoples came from. And so, anybody who's moved to a new city knows uh, what the situation's like, right? That uh, I'll take myself for example. I'm from the upper Midwest. When I moved down here to North Carolina, the first thing that I did was I bought season tickets to the hockey team down here because <laughs> hockey was a part of my life and in, in the upper Midwest. Right. So I, I grabbed onto something familiar. Uh, and this is what the Plains Ojibwe people did as well too, that the Turtle Mountain region was familiar, but just like anybody who moves to a new city, you, you can't just go to hockey games, right. Uh, that you, uh, learn to experience and and appreciate the rest of where you're living. And so Plains Ojibwe people did this. They engaged in trades and and ratings and uh, expanding their own territory and engaging with what the the prairie had to offer as well. So you really see uh, something of a a transformation of Ojibwe peoples into adopting a, a, a new type of lifestyle. Which uh, many scholars, uh, many recent scholars have been careful to note that that doesn't mean that they're no longer Ojibwe, but uh, that they are uh, evolving as people do uh, to new and different circumstances and changing times.
1: So let's discuss the band in Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians um, for example, in your book, a uh, Minnesota delegate, his name is uh, Alexander Ramsey, in the negotiations for the Old Crossings Treaty, he recognizes a Little Shell second as the chief of the Pembina Band, and then Pembina, p- yes. <laughs> Pembina Band, That's- and then and then conflates uh, the Turtle Mountain Collective of Plains Ojibwe and Métis peoples with this particular band. Um, You then argue that there was, without question, a Pembina Band of Plains Ojibwe that centered their activities around trading posts that were established at Pembina. But the Pembina did not and could not speak for other bands, including the peoples of Turtle Mountain, who conceived of themselves differently. In fact, federal officials may have had it backward, as the Pembina Band may have been a subset of the larger Turtle Mountain Collective. As such, it is just as likely, if not even more so, you argue that Little Shell II, this, this 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 chief, was a prominent leader whose ability to influence transcended bands, and who lived in the Turtle Mountain region and happened to trade at Pembina. So, can you elucidate the role that such bands played in Ojibwe political structure before and after they moved onto the plains?
0: Well, certainly, and, and uh, other people have written about this more extensively than I have, uh, but it, it is reflective of the the way that we think about it now versus the way that Ojibwe and other Native peoples thought about it uh, back in the day. That we think and talk and write in terms of nationhood and in terms of. How we conceptualize a certain political entity, uh, which, again, other people have elucidated is not necessarily how uh, Native peoples thought about it themselves. So to to sort of understand what was happening in that moment, one has to take the, the step back and realize that the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, as we know and understand it as a tribal nation today, is very much a creation of the federal government. And it's like a a lot of different places where you see the confederated tribes of of this or that nation, or uh, even in North Dakota, the three affiliated tribes, right, that you have the creation of this political unit more for the benefit of the federal government than for the tribe itself. And so Turtle Mountain is made up of Plains Ojibwe people and Métis people. But in this moment that we're talking about, before there is a Turtle Mountain band or or, Mount Nation as we know it, uh, Ojibwe peoples are li- living in more discrete uh, uh, collectives, right, that see connections to one another uh, and recognize the commonality that they have with these other collectives, but are not necessarily thinking themselves as one unified nation. It's not like we're dealing with states within the United States. We're talking about relatively autonomous groups of people so that leaders are able to be leaders because they're able to convince enough people to follow them, right, as opposed to being appointed or or what have you. And so what's happening, as I understand it, is that little shell who is a main leader at this point in time, is exercising a lot of influence in the Plains region. But what the federal government is doing, because most of their interaction is at Pemina, which is this trading post, which is really right at the corner of North Dakota, Minnesota, and Manitoba, they're identifying, because that's about as far west as we're getting in this region at this point in time, is everybody is Pemina. So that Plains Ojibwe or furthering west are coming to Pemina to trade. Uh, Americans uh, are coming to Pemina to trade. And so then all of a sudden, uh, we have this conceptualization of the, of the Pemina band speaking for everybody else. And that's just not the way that it operated. And because that's not the way that it operated, when Turtle Mountain tried to assert itself as its own political unit a few years later, they ran into trouble. Because there was this identification of them as part of this pemina band, and I should say this misidentification of them as part of this pemina. Uh,
1: during the same time period, um, this in the same Minnesota delegate Alexander, Alexander Ramsey, he dismisses uh, the Turtle Mountain Métis as uh, quasi citizens of the United States. Uh, Ramsey also argues that or argued that the Plains Ojibwe were the real owners of the soil who are completely under the control of their half-breed relatives. Um, <clears throat> he additionally distinguishes between British and American Ojibwe. Um, I should mention that after the Red River resistance, um, the demarcation of Canadian Manitoba divided the Turtle Mountains, yet purportedly created uh, uh, maybe a, a province for quasi-citizen Métis. Um, That was until British-Canadian militarization and the real rebellions forced uh, Manitoba Métis families back across the U.S.-Canadian border. By 1906, the U.S. Burke Act had allowed federal officials to expedite competency appraisals of Turtle Mountain agrarian allotments by blood quantum. This act further facilitated state taxation and dispossession of competent, in quotes, Métis farmers. And then incompetent played Ojibwe peoples and plots in turn became wards of the state. Now, how did blood quantum, um, as well as federal uh, demarcation and diminishment of reservation boundaries, in addition to allotment, generate platforms for subsequent Turtle Mountain Chippewa factions, such as the 1930 uh, Dunceith contingent? In short, how did blood quantum and diminished reservation boundaries fit into uh, later factions and constitutionalism within the Turtle Mountain Band?
0: Well, that's a, that's a very good question. It speaks to the heart of the study in many different ways. So that <clears throat> essentially to understand what's happening with the Constitution and to, to read the consequences of it. You have to understand what's happening in the political moment beforehand. And Turtle Mountain is consists of Plains Ojibwe and Métis peoples, and so many people in the United States, uh, certainly your your audience, probably does, but many people in the United States don't recognize that Métis have a, a political and legal distinction in Canada, right? That the that the uh, You'll forgive the oversimplification, but the mixed race people who emerged from the the fur trade and this particular political moment uh, have their own uh, legal and political distinction in Canada. Well, they don't have that in the United States, right? Uh, But the Métis understood themselves in many respects as being their own people, that they uh, were a mixture of these two different cultures and and were beginning to really assert themselves as their own, uh, not just social, but political unit on the plains. And so you have a bunch of competing interests so that the plains Ojibwe are there and that the Métis are there and other tribal groups are there. And there was often much in terms of cooperation amongst these groups, but there was also plenty of, of friction as well, too. So in this moment, Right. what's happening is that you have uh, the plains Ojibwe uh, who are relatively small in population the metis greatly outnumber them they end up uh, becoming the representatives that are allowed to to speak to the federal government the metis have to to stand in the background on the United States side of the board and that creates its own difficulties and resentments but it also uh, creates other issues as well too and that Federal officials begin saying, "Hey, look, there are too few Plains Ojibwe, or too too few real Indians, as it were, uh, to negotiate with. And the Métis aren't really Indians themselves, so you know, there's really nobody truly here who can claim this land. Uh, and through these processes, the Plains Ojibwe and the Métis uh, begin to assert their own claims in different ways." but also in conjunction with each other. And so then the the formation of the the Turtle Mountain Band, right, comes along because these processes essentially force these two groups together in a way that makes them have to uh, determine what they can and they cannot uh, negotiate for with the federal government. And so what, what you see is you see the federal government, in essence, trying to exclude and diminish in any way that it can, the claims to territory made by both of these groups, and then ultimately the, the Turtle Mountain Collective, right? There's too few actual real Indians, and the Métis are quasi-citizens that uh, have plenty of rights if they just play by the rules and, and accept and appreciate the benefits of their white blood.
1: So let's focus on the uh, in the early 1930s Dunseath Contingent, one of these groups that you speak of for uh, just a moment. You argue that they really felt marginalized by the enrolled majority Métis population of the Turtle Mountain Band. Um, why, why did they feel this way? And what were the circumstances for them? I, you've kind of touched upon a little bit already. In addition, why did this particular group initially favor a legal claim against the federal government? over what would become the 1932 Constitution?
0: Well, that's, that gets to the crux, of the crux of the constitutional discussion itself, and that's a very good question. So basically there are three contingents that I identify in the book, operating at the point in time in 1932 when the Constitution is on the table. And that's, that's, there's another story behind how the Constitution got onto the table that we can talk about later but there are three mm-hmm. contingents trying to exercise political authority at this point in time. One is the Dunseith contingent, one is the advisory committee, and one is the cooperative association. And they they all represent different types of, of interests on the reservation. The Dunseith contingent is made up essentially of the quote-unquote real Indians, right, the people who are not claiming Métis heritage but see their origins amongst the plains of Ojibwe. And because they are a much smaller part of the population, and many of them live outside of the reservation boundaries proper, there's a real sense of marginalization there, that they're not participating in the political process, they're not able to participate in the political process, that they're getting squeezed out by other groups of people, most broadly the Métis itself. And then you have the advisory committee, which is what comes to be the advisory committee, who are the folks who are sort of the vestiges of the, the political machinations that had happened up until the 1930s, who are trying to assert their own authority and trying to do two different things, that they're trying to initiate a constitution, but also gain more control on the reservation. So they end up clashing quite a bit with one of the superintendents in particular and have a lot of complaints about him. But he complains back to his superiors all the time saying, these people are trying to take over. They're trying to dictate policy. They're essentially trying to assert authority. And then you have the cooperative association, your third uh, designation. And those are folks led by this really charismatic character named Robert Bruce. And you get to read a little bit more about him in the book itself. But he was, in many respects, the, the quintessential Allotment era man. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I I mean that if anybody was going to fulfill the promise of the allotment era such that it was, it was going to be this guy so that he was educated off the reservation. He was a veteran. He was a very talented musician who toured and and played around the country, and he came back home and he said, look, we need to become better citizens, we need to become more politically active, we need better resources here on the reservation, and he took a number of steps, and he and his organization took a number of steps to really try to fulfill the promise of this era and argue for better health care, better housing, more political participation, so on and so forth. And what's really fueling these different uh, contingents are are different motivations. So the Dunceith contingent wants to start a claim against the federal government. And you'll forgive the spoiler alert here, but uh, (laughs) the whole purpose of the Constitution at Turtle Mountain, uh, according to my analysis, is to assert a claim against the federal government. And the Dunseith contingent wants to do it on its own, right? Particularly because they've, they've felt marginalized. The eventual advisory committee uh, also wants to assert one. The cooperative association is really not all that interested in it, right? That it wants to just engage in, in a more of a more political development on the reservation. <clears throat> so they all have different motivations, but they're all trying to come together in this moment to figure out what exactly is going to happen with the, the future of uh, Turtle Mountain governance.
1: Why did uh, this particular group, the uh, Dunseith group ultimately accept the reservation or why do you think it ultimately, uh, they ultimately accepted the reservation uh, contingent's notion that a constitution would advance a legal claim that touches a little bit on the reasons why the, 1932 constitution was on the table in the first place.
0: Well, I'm uh, let's, let's start here that I'm not entirely sure that the Duncey contingent ever really did accept it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I think that uh, in being real honest here, well, no, no, your question is very valid, but I think what, what's really, really at the heart of what I'm trying to express in this moment is that I think that the divisions that existed back then, to a certain extent, still exists today. That people at Turtle Mountain have a real good idea of who's Métis or Mitchief and and who's uh, Ojibwe. And and my research into later periods of time suggests that that's that's a tension that that can bubble up very quickly, right? So I'm not sure that they accepted it so much. But what did happen is that enough people did accept this constitution precisely because. It was sold as the way to begin a lawsuit, and so what happens at Turtle Mountain is that the Plains Ojibwe and Métis get smashed together, and on a very tiny reservation that people uh, that the people at the time were unhappy with how the reservation came about, that the traditional leadership at Turtle Mountain was disrupted in many different ways, which also helps to to further the schism that that was occurring at Turtle Mountain that the what's called a treaty but was really an agreement because it was post 1871 uh, this the so-called 10 cent treaty and its consequences for the reservation also angered people to to motivate it, it's motivation in wanting to, to do something with uh, with the federal government and it manifests itself in this desire for a lawsuit against the federal government so that from the time that the reservation is established and the 10 cent treaty happens the dominant political motivating factor at turtle mountain is this lawsuit and the lawsuit pushes every political choice that happens thereafter so then in 1932 when a new superintendent comes to town he looks around and he says to himself all right uh, i know how i can how i can uh, get these Indians to do my bidding, more or less, right? Uh, so we'll, we'll get them to uh, accept this constitution. And uh, we'll tell them that it's the way that they get their lawsuit going. And he may have legitimately believed this as well, too. I, I don't uh, care to disparage his character too much. I, I can't read into what his mind was almost 80, 90 years ago, whatever it was. But he presented the Constitution as the only mechanism to begin the lawsuit. Now, the thing about the 1932 Constitution is that it's not a very good document for tribal peoples. It's not a very good document for Turtle Mountain. And other studies have made clear that at this period of time, the the late allotment era, there were a number of constitutions going around Indian country. And the purpose seems to be that they were to service the superintendent that they were to create a formal structure by which the tribe could focus its uh, discussions with the federal government. And so that what would happen is tribal peoples would come to a superintendent and have a complaint, and then he would be able to say, well, go to your council, right, or go to your advisory committee. And and then that way, they could deal with with a lot of the stuff. And then The advisory committee could bring the big stuff to the superintendent, and that's how it was supposed to work, right? That these early constitutions, these pre-IRA constitutions were additional tools in the allotment era towards the same notions of assimilation and the the destruction of uh, tribal ways of doing things, right? They were tools of, of allotment. And so then you have the superintendent come into Turtle Mountain and says, it looks like they could use, uh, or I could use this tool to, (coughs) excuse me, help me focus the people at Turtle Mountain. And And he sold it to the community in the meeting that they had about it. He said, look, if you want to start a lawsuit, this is the only way it gets done. You pass this constitution, and then as a united group, you can take the next step forward toward the lawsuit. So then what happens in 1932 is that the people of Turtle Mountain are left with what is a really terrible choice, right? Do they continue to try to pursue a lawsuit on their own terms, which by that point they've been doing for decades with with no success? Or do they accept this constitution that people recognized was not so great for the community in and of itself, but could maybe finally lead to that next important step along the road toward the, the lawsuit that they really want. So then the choice uh, again becomes, <clears throat> or what ends up happening is, is community members uh, decided to choose to pursue the, the lawsuit and adopt the constitution. And then a couple of years later when the IRA comes along, Folks at Turtle Mountain are again given the opportunity to rethink their constitutional model, and a lot of people end up being a lot very afraid because uh, they're not so sure about this IRA because they're not sure what the consequences are going to be for the lawsuit that they want to start. Right? So somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, you know, this is how you start your lawsuit," and two years later they come back to you and say, "No, you got to really change everything." Uh, and you might say to yourself, well, how, what's, how is it going to affect the lawsuit? And this is what happened at Turtle Mountain. And so <clears throat> there's not necessarily uh, a lot of unity to maybe finally answer the question that you've been asking me. You know, there's not necessarily a lot of unity to, between these contingents, except for on the one point that most everybody at Turtle Mountain wants to start a lawsuit. And that's the thing that's driving all of this uh, together.
1: We'll get to the IRA in a moment. I just part of my question was a clarifying impetus. Um, so did, uh, part of specifically the Dunceith group did, um, I know the whole, the whole group didn't, didn't accept the constitution, but did, did, um, any, any mem- specific members vote for the constitution that you know of off the top of your head or in your research or
0: Well, I I wish I could give you that information. I wish I had a breakdown (laughs) of exactly who was at the meeting and how they voted and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I I just don't have that information. I don't know what the demographics exactly were, other than to say that by the end of the day, when they're discussing the Constitution, the vast majority of those who voted, voted in favor.
1: You already mentioned the IRA. Um, I'm going to read a passage from your book that I thought was striking. So um, in 1935, the Indian office in Washington, D.C. only considered approximately a sixth of enrolled Turtle Mountain Chippewa uh, members as eligible to vote for the New Deal's Indian Reorganization Act. When you refer to the IRA, that's what you're referring to, the New Deal's Indian Reorganization Act. You lament in the book that the Indian office's decision represented yet another example of the federal government's unwillingness to appreciate the unique circumstances under which the Turtle Mountain Band was formed and operated. You also mentioned that a number of people on the reservation, as well as one of the groups, uh, believed that the IRA could reform the 1932 Constitution's inert advisory committee, especially in the areas of law enforcement, greater access to land, including the purchase and redistribution of land on the reservation owned by non-natives, greater aid to indigents and a unique plan to grant citizenship to those who had been previously excluded. As they concerned governance on the reservation, the suggestions, these previous proposals and then subsequent suggestions did not always cohere with one another. Why did, why did these and, and, proposals and subsequent suggestions not always cohere beyond their same end? The short answer
0: is that I think in this moment when people are giving some consideration to the IRA, that there's a lot of throwing stuff against the wall and and see what might stick, right? And so we don't necessarily have all the coherence in the world with the possible suggestions about what the IRA could or maybe couldn't do. What's interesting is less, in my opinion, about whether or not it all coheres, but what it what all points to. So, for example, the the suggestion that uh, maybe we can start enrolling, say, people who marry in, and things of that nature, right? So that there's a, a moment of trying to rethink what citizenship might look like. But it all stems back again to the discontent with what happened with the the reservation in the treaty, and. With the reservation, it was uh, originally enacted in 1882 by an executive order. And then a couple of years later, the reservation lands were shrunk by about 90%, <clears throat> which, of course, was not, ended up not being enough land for the people that were there. And then with the treaty, it really disrupted uh, leadership at the time and and paid way too much for the lands, or I mean, way too much. It paid way too little for the lands that uh, it ended up purchasing. So the, it receives this derisive nickname, the Ten Cent Treaty, because it's paying for uh, ten cents per acre. Whereas other lands uh, around this area are getting a dollar to two dollars at the time, right? So it's really. Uh, it looks like a lot when you think about uh the amount of uh, land that's being purchased, but it it really isn't right it's just it's ten cents per acre and so in the wake of all of this uh frustration and and difficulty, what you have is you have people reacting uh well excuse me i should let me take one more step back and say. Part of the consequence of what happens then is because you do not have enough land is that then a lot of people at Turtle Mountain have to find land elsewhere. And so then the treaty says, well, okay, uh, you can take uh, essentially uh, allotments elsewhere in the country and um, wherever you can, wherever other homestead is, homesteading is going on, you can have land there as well, too. So it led to, in many respects, an exodus. So that there are people who own parcels of land near Devil's Lake in North Dakota, uh, even as far as South Dakota, uh, even into Montana, right? So there are a lot of Turtle Mountain people kind of spread around beyond the reservation. And because of this, because there's a lot of people spread around, right, and not necessarily the, the a lot of people or not everybody focused on the reservation itself, to then exclude people outside of the reservation in a vote on the IRA really speaks to uh, the federal government's inability to recognize the conditions for the people at Turtle Mountain that the federal government created. That they're once again, establishing uh, negative consequences for people who have already suffered because of the choices made about land at Turtle Mountain. And so what, what you have is you have people reacting against that, and when, when there's some suggestion about what to do about it when the IRA comes around, there's a lot of suggestion that is about inclusion, about expanding the land base, about trying to rectify some of the wrongs that come along with the history of how Turtle Mountain came to be in the first place.
1: So, um, I just, before we get to the conclusion, I want to jump back a little bit. And an a interesting part of the book uh, discusses the relationship between uh, uh, Turtle Mountain superintendents um, and uh, the uh, pre existing uh, tribal police force and courts, which were began at least around 1900. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between the superintendent system and then the Indian staff, tribal police force and courts prior to these constitutional debates. You argue that by 1924, Tribal uh, representatives reported to the superintendent twice, a, presumably the superintendent, you can clarify that, twice a week on issues ranging from from uh, school attendance to uh, so-called mixed blood uh, dances and during prohibition, the liquor trade. Uh, how did these law enforcers interface with the uh, superintendent, um, you know, in terms of uh, perhaps in terms of uh, their notions of sovereignty, et cetera? Can you just elaborate the uh, again, more on these Uh, pre-1932 tribal police officers and courts and the relationship to the superintendents.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, And again, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with, uh, uh, at least from the federal perspective, another instrument of allotment, right? That these are, that the idea is if you can get the, yeah, right, if you can get the community to police itself, uh, you're well on your way to turning the community into what you want it to be. And so this is another example of this, uh, but it's also interesting. And, and to be honest with you, I don't know a lot about who particularly or uh, exactly was, were in these positions other than uh, a, a few small things. Uh, but I think what's most interesting about them, in, at least in the context of Turtle Mountain, is that uh, <clears throat> a lot of times the community would police the police, right? And so then I've seen letters to the superintendent, hey, I saw this police officer drinking or that police officer engaging in this other bad behavior. And so here you have a position that in one respect is probably cherished because it's one of the few real economic opportunities on the reservation, although the research suggests that not always. So for example, uh, I know, at least in in one year, and probably more, the superintendent had to write to his superior saying, "Hey, we ran out of money for the court, uh, but these judges kept working for the next couple of years. Is there any way we can keep paying them?" And so, interesting. Uh, in one, yeah, and, and so in one respect, it, it it was a way to make money and and to hold some prestige within the community. But these folks were not without. Uh, their difficulties as well too, and they're being policed, <clears throat> and they're they're stuck in this sort of middle position in, in many respects. But it was also, I mean, it was one of these situations in which, one of these situations in which, you know, it's it's a bit of a, a double edged sword for the community, and I don't really see, at least in my research. That uh, it having too much effect on how the Constitution came to be, mm. other than to, to note that uh, it led to the frustration about how things were happening at Turtle Mountain and a real desire by people to try to exercise greater and greater authority where, whenever and wherever they could. So, for example, uh, folks around this era were sending letters to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs saying, hey, you should let us choose who gets to be superintendent. And I don't think this is only at Turtle Mountain that where this is happening, but it's in an era, in the allotment era where we regularly think about uh, and conceptualize it only in terms of loss and in terms of the bad things that happen to Native people. It's worth uh, taking a look at what's happening on the ground to realize where agency is being expressed or where people are trying to engage with the federal government on terms that that are more to their liking. And that's part of what this whole study is about, right? By taking that step back and really asking, well, why in the world are the people at Turtle Mountain? Attempting to, uh, What are they attempting to do with their constitution, right? It's one thing to come in and say the superintendent was trying to impose this tool of assimilation on them. Well, that's true, right? But that doesn't explain why the people of Turtle Mountain voted for it. And they wanted to, they wanted, uh, to get their lawsuit going. Now we're forced to ask, well, what are the consequences of that right? Uh, what happens when you're not enacting a constitution primarily to establish a government but rather to achieve the these other political ends? What does that mean for the legacy of not just that document but constitution constitutionalism more generally within the community right so it's all about taking a greater a greater look, particularly in this allotment era, when we tend to think about loss, uh, taking a greater look at at what people are actually really trying to do. And it will also uh, help us to think through not just the allotment era, but I also very much think the Indian Reorganization Act era. So a big part of this book is trying to disrupt the narrative that we talked about earlier, which says that the federal government came in and imposed these boilerplate constitutions on tribal people. Well, you know, I don't think that's uh, a real helpful descriptor of what's happening at the time. But even if you want to buy that much, it still neglects what tribal peoples were doing. And until we really ask the question, what are folks doing when they're either adopting or rejecting a constitution? We're not going to get a real sense of what governance looked like at the time what, uh, what the constitution has and continues to mean within the community and how that can speak to maybe even larger perspectives as well.
1: On that note, in the conclusion, there is another constitution, um, that you discuss uh, briefly, and in the conclusion, you affirm that the events surrounding this 1959 constitution and the attempts at reform in the early 2000s deserve a deeper articulation and greater scholarly attention. For now, you argue, it suffices to note that each incident echoes the experience of the 1932 constitution. Why are these events significant for Turtle Mountain constitutionalism and U.S. Constitution- constitutionalism more broadly, speaking about the 1959 Constitution as well as the early 2000s um, reform attempts?
0: Well, I think what's really happening there is that they what becomes important in 1959 when the Constitution is rewritten and then in 2000 when there are reform attempts that end up failing is that – as you noted, they fall into this pattern where things other than the government or establishing a, a governmental structure through a constitution become more important than, uh, than the document itself. So again, in 1932, it's all about starting the claim. Well, in the 1950s, you have this really unique uh, political moment where you're still stuck in the termination era. But people are also very angry. And so what happens is a real interesting character comes along and makes a lot of promises and gets people fired up in a political moment that uh, who knows, maybe we could sort of sympathize with now today in a way that really gets folks ready to do something. And so then what happens is is you have the, the old guard fighting with these upstarts Right, And at first, they both present different versions of constitutions, but then the feds get involved. And by the end of it, both of these constitutions look quite similar, that there are really only a few superficial differences between the two. And so then the question becomes not about which constitution is better, because they're essentially identical. It becomes about, well, who do we want to lead us? Do we want the old guard or do we want the fire-breathing new kids on the block? And the community chose the new kit and uh, they re- they get into power and they realize that it doesn't always work that the way they want it to, and then they get in trouble right away. And so, in '32, you had uh, a lot of discontent with the end product. In '59, you immediately ended up having a lot of discontent with the with the product, right? And then in 2000, it really became an issue about a particular tribal chairman who was spearheading the efforts at reform in a lot of way. And when it became a referendum, not on the constitution, but on the, this chairman, that's when, again, you, you you see the purposes or the desires of the community reflected in this different sort of way. So you end up with a very long history of people at Turtle Mountain uh, with a document that nobody seems to particularly like, or or uh, considers much more of a, at at best a necessary step to get the real work done. And if it's all just this necessary step to get the the real work done, uh, what does what does that mean for the possibilities for this constitution and then how people think about it? Right. So in the American context. Certainly, the U.S. Constitution establishes a government, but it very much also operates as a symbol behind which uh, every politician stands and and claims fidelity to and and so on and so forth. Well, if you've never liked your Constitution for 80-some years, right, what does that mean for you and your community, right? What does that mean for politicians? Uh, Are you better off saying that you're not going to follow the Constitution? Uh, do you, to, to what extent do you feel bound by what it says? If this is your constitutional history, <laughs> can it operate in that same way that it operates for, uh, say, the U.S. government? And then that gets us in this bigger question as to whether or not uh, constitutionalism is this end-all, be-all answer to any governmental problem in in the United States, certainly has some history in in trying to make the argument that it does with, let's say, mixed results uh, around the world. So Turtle Mountain gives us the opportunity to reflect upon what sort of conditions might be necessary for constitutionalism to, to really take hold. And what that means for Indian country, being Uh, stuck in a settler colonial state, Uh, as well as other questions uh, along those lines.
1: One brief, uh, very brief follow-up question. How do these events, as well as these debates, uh, relate to the tribal code? You mentioned the tribal code in the introduction and the conclusion, but I just wanted uh, just maybe a a brief uh, elaboration on the tribal code and its relationship to the constitution. And constitutionalism.
0: Well, sir. Well, it, certainly. The, the tribal code is the the body of laws for for the tribe for those who are maybe not familiar. So you think about you know the, the United States has uh, its Constitution, but it also has the U.S. Code, which is where the laws that Congress pass it, it become part of the the code, right? And so Turtle Mountain has that as well too. And I think what ends up happening in a lot of ways is because there's a lot more direct participation between the governance structure at Turtle Mountain and the code, that it becomes perhaps more important or the very first things that that folks point to, and that there may be, there's a little less concentration on the constitution itself, which is maybe a little bit backwards in many respects, right? That the code has to, at least how we think about it in, how we structure governance in the United States, that the code has to serve the constitution, not the other way around. But there's an introductory story in the, in, in the book about how I was sitting in on a case and as in my duties as a tribal judge. And I was surprised that the lawyers in the case kept trying to make reference to the code. Well, I and my other justices kept trying to ask them about the Constitution. And it just felt weird to me as somebody who's legally trained in in the United States that there would be this seeming reluctance to to make reference to the Constitution. Right? That's, That's at the heart of where you'd think you'd want to ground your argument. But the lawyers in the case kept referring to the code. Perhaps reflected a real sense of... How maybe the Constitution doesn't and can't operate in the same way in Turtle Mountain that it does in the U.S. context, and what does that mean? And I don't think that we're really going to be able to get at the heart of governance in the United and governance in Indian country, I should say, without really thinking about these constitutional histories. That they are part of what fuels governance in the here and now. And without a, a better understanding of that, that history, it's hard to imagine, say, reforms that can take care of the, the issue without really hitting head on the, the deeper problems, right? That if all you're gonna do is amend your constitution, which has happened a number of times, Eternal Mountain. You're essentially just putting the the Band-Aid on the gunshot wound here, right? You got to deal with the the deeper issue if you're really going to reflect and reform governance structures in a way that makes sense for a community.
1: Well, I thank you for your time here uh, today and your thoughts, Professor. Um, I have uh, one last question. Um, Are there any, uh, can we expect any more books from you or any research on the table or anything that you'd like to uh, briefly mention?
0: No, I'm done. No, my next my next project is actually uh, a it is a textbook for Indian law and policy for an undergraduate and graduate audience, essentially a non-lawyer audience, right? So that there are plenty of very, very good textbooks and case books for people who want to study Indian law in say a law school setting. But I don't know if there's really a uh, really good text right now for people who are at a different level. Or those who are not necessarily planning on going to law school. But law is such a fundamental part of how to understand Indian country that I think it's necessary to really have a text that would help people to understand and contextualize some of the issues that that develop in Indian country, uh, even if they're not necessarily going to go to law school. So that's the next big project. And there are other things in the works, but I won't uh, take up too much more of your time describing.
1: Thank you so much, professor. Again, uh, I appreciate uh, having you and your thoughts here today on the uh, native American studies and history channel for the new books network. This is uh, Ryan trip. Tune in again uh, next time. And I'll uh, tell my listeners. uh, Thank you very much. And we'll see you again next time.